The first says, Accept what I have done for you and in behalf of you, and let that be my ticket to heaven. The second is the picture of God stooping down to us, saying, Accept what I have done for you. And in accepting this gift of eternal life, you have heaven. And it is only by believing in Him, that's the only thing I can do. Nothing, to the, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There are only two kinds of religions across this earth. One is the religion of human achievement, and the other is the religion of divine provision. A few years ago, a man by the name of Bill Butterworth wrote a musical entitled John 3.16. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it or not, uh, Mark. He wrote several of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, Most of them are youth musicals. And he wrote John 3.16, a part of the words, one of the uh, solos in that, uh, in that musical goes like this. Now, it'll help you to remember that this is a youthy song. I won't sing it. Not by working nor by joining, or by praying or by going, but by believing on Him. Not by stopping or by trying, or by giving or by crying, but believing on Him. Not by brains, little cutie, or by trusting in your beauty, but by believing on Him. Not by fasting or outlasting, or by money, little honey, but by believing on Him. Not by Sunday school attendance, or by keeping Ten Commandments, but believing on Him. This is, what I, this is one I like. Not by going underwater, or by dating the preacher's daughter, but by <laughs> believing on Him. Now that sounds so simple, doesn't it? Easy to grasp. You'd think that anybody who would hear that would want that. I mean, I would want something that, that anybody could qualify for, even a child could qualify for this. And all I have to do is just, by, just believing on Him. But we have, the Bible says we have stumbled over the simplicity of that. And so ingrained in our mind is the work ethic that declares that there is no such thing as a free lunch, that anything in life that is worthwhile, you have to, you have to earn, you've got to work for it. So when somebody offers the gift, free gift, the natural response is, there's something more, there has to be something more. No, really, anyone can qualify. So I want you to turn to the last 11 verses of chapter 4. Now these people uh, in Galatia once believed on Him, and that was all they did. Not by working or by joining or by stopping or by going, just believing on Him. They just simply were believing on Him. But something happened to them. The Judaizers came back into this group of people and they began to draw them back into into the other religion, the religion of human achievement. And they they were thinking about going back to that bondage. They didn't go back. They hadn't gone back. But they were certainly anticipating it. 
And so he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Verse 9, But that's yet now you've come to know God, or rather God knows you. How is it that you turn back again to the weak things, worthless things? What in the world is happening to you? Look at verse 20. But I could wish to be present with you now to exchange my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The, the thing that was troubling the apostle was he couldn't understand why they were doing that. Why in the world would anybody who had an opportunity to have the free gift of eternal life just by receiving it through faith, why would anybody turn back to the slavery and the bondage of Judaism? He can't explain it. He can't understand it. He can't fathom it. And he's dealt with this all through these four chapters. First part of the study, he just rips their hide. I mean, he rips them. He is furious. These words are like volcanic uh, fire erupting. He is furious. Last time we looked at this, however, he takes a new approach and he's down on his knees and he's begging these people, don't go back to that slavery. Don't go back to the religion of human achievement. And now he's come to give it one concluding shot. He's going to give them one more shot. One concluding argument. And this passage, which is the last 11 verses of this, many theologians call the most difficult passage in all of this, in all of the scripture. The most difficult passage in this book. And so he's coming to this, and he comes to verse 21, and he says this. If I can find it, tell me, you who want to be under law. Now I want you to take, if you've got a pencil, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle, put a circle around the word want because that is the basic reason they're turning back again. Um, whatever the reason, whatever the excuse we give for our sin, the reason we sin is because we want to. We choose to. And the reason these people are turning back to Judaism is not because it makes more sense. It's because it appeals to their, to their emotion. It appeals to their lust. I mean, I want to do something that, is, that will achieve something for myself. It's the basic drive of human pride. I want this. So the apostle is saying, you say you want to be under the law, have you heard what the law says? In other words, have you read the book? Do you know what you're getting yourself into? You say you want this, do you understand what that means? A friend of mine was telling me one time, he was witnessing to a Roman Catholic. He had his New Testament out, and he was sharing the gospel of this Roman Catholic, and the, and the Roman Catholic said, well now, that, wait a minute, that's, that's your Bible. He said, you got your Bible, we have our Bible. And he said, uh, you're reading out of your Bible because you believe that. He said, well, let me have your Bible. And he said, the Roman Catholic gave him his Bible, he opened his Bible and read the same stuff out of it, and witnessed to him right out of it. And the guy said, wow, he said, man, that's, that's amazing. That, that is in my Bible. 
What Paul is saying is, let, let me have this book, this thing you call the law. And by the way, he's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about this principle of life referred to as the law. He's, let me have this book of you. Let me have this law of yours. And I can take your position and break it down before I get out of the Genesis. You hear what I'm saying? He's, I can take this book, this law that you want to go back to, and I can take this position that you're holding on to or you want to accept, and I can tear that down and destroy that position before I get out of the book of Genesis. And so the argument then breaks into three parts. Now, I wasn't here to proofread this. And when I read it tonight, I realized we're going to have to do a little proofreading of our own right here, okay? So you take this... Uh, there's a blue sheet. We're going to have to change some stuff here. You know where it says, we're going, to, we're going to proofread this. The, the analysis of the concluding argument is verses 21 through 31. Okay, the, the history... It breaks into three sections. The history, verses 22 and 23. An allegory, verses 24 through 27. It's 22 there, so it's 24 through 27. And the application is 28 through 31. Can you write that down? Appreciate it. So we can get that together. Now, he's going to take this position of human achievement, and he's going to break it down, destroy that position in the book of Genesis. Okay? First of all, the first section has to do with history. Now I want us to go back tonight and, and, and dissect some Old Testament history. Verses 22 and 23. Read with me. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now when he says it is written, he's referring to Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. Because what he's going to refer to is written in those chapters. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now that's the history of Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. And when he says Abraham had two sons, the ears of these Jews perked up because the Jews believed that when you were a descendant of Abraham, that you were a part of the family of God, ipso facto, by the very nature of that. And they knew that they were descendants of Abraham. So when he mentioned two sons, he's referring to that um, descendancy. And they knew that they were sons of Abraham. Therefore, they were in the family of God. You talk to any Jew, if he's a descendant of Abraham, he's ipso facto a member of the family of God. And what Paul is doing is going 
to show here that he is not simply being related to Abraham because of physical birth, but by being in league with Abraham spiritually, that sets us right with God. Now you need to get that and write that down. It is not simply being related to Abraham because of physical birth, but by being in league with Abraham spiritually that sets us right with God. And when you get that, you get the basic premise of eternal salvation. And he says that there are two sons. There is the son of the bondwoman. Look at your column there. The bondwoman was Hagar. The son of the bondwoman was born of flesh. That means that this son of this woman, Hagar, was given birth by the natural process of birthing, the natural process of being born, born of the flesh. And there was the one who was born of the free woman. The free woman is Sarah. And her son was born of the promise. In other words, his birth was a supernatural birth. He was born of the Spirit. The promise of of God is the promise of the Spirit. So you have one who is born of natural birth and you have one who is born of supernatural birth. One who is born of flesh and one who is born of Spirit. Now in this, look at this column. In the left-hand column, there is Hagar. Now, Hagar is a slave woman. She was a slave, the maid, really, of of Sarah, the maid of Abraham. To her was born a son. You talk back to me now. His name was Ishmael. she She gave birth to Ishmael. He was the son of the bondwoman. Now, you know the story, don't you? Abraham and Sarah wanted a son, a little son. God had promised Abraham a son. No son came. So they decided they'd just take care of matters. And so Sarah gave the, 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 the handmaid, gave the bondwoman to Abraham so that he could uh, uh, lie with her and have a child. I mean, they, went, they circumvented the plan of God. And this son was born, named Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. The son of the wife, Sarah, the free woman, was was Isaac. And his birth was a supernatural birth. It was so miraculous that when Sarah heard it was going to happen, she laughed. It's incredible. It'll never happen. So one was born in the natural way, natural process, and the other was born in the supernatural way, the supernatural process. Now, I always want to jump ahead a little bit because I can't wait to say this. You already figured it out. The way that a person is rightly related to God is by the supernatural birth called the new birth, the birth of the Spirit. And a person is not rightly related to God, no matter what kind of a parentage or descendancy is. In order to be rightly related to God, there must be this supernatural birth, the birth of the Spirit of God. He must be born again. 
I mean, even Jimmy Carter knew that. Now look at the allegory, verse 24. Now he moves from history to an allegory. Let me tell you what an allegory is. You might want to drop this down. An allegory is a symbolic uh, representation. Webster says that, that, that an allegory having hidden spiritual meaning which transcends the literal word. There is a hidden spiritual meaning in a, in a, in a, in a natural word, in a written word, that, an allegory. Now it doesn't mean that this didn't literally happen. It means that he's, he's taking this, this event right up out of history and he's teaching this, this Hebrew message spiritual message that's hidden beneath the, the history itself. Stumble through that uh, enough to get everybody confused. The allegory is to take this event from history and show a spiritual truth as it relates to that. That's what's happening. So he moves from history. And he says there are two covenants. Let's read verses 24 through 27. Because this is difficult, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to work our way through it. Just stay with me. This is the allegory speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now let me give you a definition of a covenant. A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and man in which God uh, makes them His people and promises to make Him their God. It is a solemn agreement between God and man in which He makes them His people and promises to make Himself their God. Now He says there are two covenants. This is the allegory. This is the hidden spiritual meaning of this story. One proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now you, you read this in your quiet time tomorrow and you won't, get a, you won't understand this. Let's work this through this together. Hang in here with me. Two covenants... One was originated in Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponding to present Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Bring forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. What strange stuff. Let's see if we can decipher what it means. Now the old covenant, this agreement between God and man, was established at Mount Sinai. It's where the law was given. It's where the law was given. And there was this lifestyle that was linked to, a, to the law. And so he is referring to that time when the Jews became the Jews, when the Jews became the people of God in the establishment of the covenant at Sinai and the, and the lifestyle linked to the law he gave. And he said, they're like this earthly Jerusalem. Put that in the back of your mind and we'll take a look at that in a minute. Like this earthly Jerusalem. 
So the old covenant was established at Sinai, represented by Hagar, tied to the law like the, old, like the earthly Jerusalem. Now, you talk back to me. When you hear the word Moscow, what do you think? Who said Russians? Good deal. Hey, my scholars. Jennifer didn't get that from, his, from her daddy. That was great. Good, Jennifer. Russians. When you say Moscow, you think of Russians. When you, when you say Tokyo, what do you think of? Japanese. When you say Jerusalem, what do you think of? Jews. Now this earthly Jerusalem are these physical Jews. Now these physical Jews are the Jews that had the law given at Sinai. They are these under the old covenant and they relate, they are under this allegory, they are analogous to Hagar and the old covenant but what about the Jerusalem that is above, he calls it. Did you see that? The Jerusalem which is above, she is our mother. The Jerusalem above represents Christ and where Christ dwells. Now let me read you this um, from Ritterboss. By this other Jerusalem, Paul means not merely the assembly of those who have left the earthly struggle to enter heaven. He means also the central point from which believers are gathered, nourished and governed, and the manner in which all this takes place. That is above, for Christ is there, and there is the citizenship of believers. It is their spiritual gathering place. This is the free Jerusalem. Those who belong to its community are not born for bondage, but for freedom and are educated in it. Not the law nor the thing they themselves must do, but grace. That which they have received in Christ determines their life. Hence Paul can refer to this Jerusalem as to a mother. For those who belong to it owe their spiritual existence to it. Watch this. For the gospel of Christ is a redeeming, emancipating, quickening power, word of power. So the real question tonight, are you listening, is not who is our father in this, in this passage. The real question is who is our mother? That is, in what way were you born? See, in what way were you born? If you have Hagar as your mother, if you're of the old covenant, you're just a flesh, a Jew. But if you're born of God, you have spiritual birth and you belong to the new Jerusalem. You're born from above. And Christ is your mother in this allegory. And that birth is uncommon. You ever heard of that before? Now look at verse 27. Let's look at that. He's quoting directly from Isaiah 54. You might want to put that in the margin and look it up. Now the original setting of this address is an address to Israel in exile. With Jerusalem in exile and in ruin, 
The nation was likened to a desolate woman. Listen. With Jerusalem in exile and in ruin, it was likened to a desolate woman. A barren woman was the nation of Israel. However, Israel will not remain so far God will restore His people to, the, to, to their homeland, to a greater glory than ever. Now what He's saying is this. There's going to be a new nation of new Jews, so to speak. There's going to be a new kingdom of God's people. And they're not going to be the Jews who are born physically Jews. They're going to be those who are born of the Spirit of God. Now this is one reason, in my opinion, humble and accurate, that I value very much, that the people of God, the real, the new kingdom of Jews, the new Jews, are those who are born of the Spirit of God. And the only way that a person can have a right relationship with God is that he be born again, whether he's Jew or Gentile. That's what he says in verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, who is he referring to, you, brethren? These Galatian Christians. You're like Isaac. You have a supernatural birth. You're born of the promise, the supernatural promise of the Spirit of God. Now, there are two things that need to be remembered. By the way, before I get out of the neighborhood here, I need to say this to that person who might be here tonight who has never had an experience called the new birth. That experience comes not by trying, not by stopping, not by, it comes by trusting. And when a person places his trust in Jesus Christ and claims Jesus as his Savior and Lord and trusts Him in Him alone, something supernatural happens inside of him, to him, and in him. It's called the new birth. And he's born like Isaac of the promise, supernatural work of God, not the natural work of, of physical birth. That's what John 3 is about. All right, now let's see what the believers as children of promise. Two things we need to remember. Begin verse 28 or 29. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, who was that? Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Who was that? Isaac. Now, if you want to look sometime at Genesis 21, verse 9, you'll see that story. It reminds you again of the time when, 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 when Isaac was born. Ishmael picked on him all the time. Ishmael picked on him. He was his half-brother, and he just tormented him, picked on him. Now watch carefully. Paul is saying this. He's saying you may expect persecution from your half-brother. Now watch what he means by that. He means that the persecution of the church does not come from those outside the church. It comes from the nominal church. Now I made a statement there I've got to clarify. The greatest threat to the people of God today 
is not the enemy outside, but complacent nominality on the inside. And the greatest enemy to your faith as a Christian, hear me, is not persecution or suffering from the unbelieving world. The greatest threat to your faith as a Christian is a lack of absolute total trust in God. The greatest threat to your Christian faith is your desire to do for God rather than just to trust the Lord and allow Him to work through you. I'm not sure you understand that. I'm not sure I'm making helping you understand. The greatest victories that will ever come in your Christian life will come when you stop trying to do for God and you just trust Him to reveal what He's doing and get in on it. Take me a long time to learn that. I'm just now learning it. What can I do for the Lord? What can I do for Him so He'll be pleased with me? Rather than discovering by faith what He's doing and avail myself to Him. Second thing he says, verse 29, or verse 30. What does its scripture say? It says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Let me tell you what that means. You know what he's saying? He's saying, recognize the absolute incompatibility with man-made religion. You can't embrace them both. You can't embrace man-made religion and a religion of divine provision. You can't embrace them. It's either or, not both and. And he's saying, cast out the bondwoman, that is, be done with this religion of human achievement and begin to trust God for the supernatural. Now there's a response, two responses that need to come from what we've studied. First, when it comes to law and grace, everyone has to get off the fence. When it comes to law and grace, everyone has to get off the fence. Now you're sitting here on Sunday night and you're thinking, He's going over this and over this and over this, and I'm already convinced that salvation is by grace through faith and not works. But you only got half of it. The rest of the half is that how you live out your Christian life is by grace apart from works. That everything that you that, that enables you to... to uh, uh, serve God is based upon what God has done for you, what God is doing. You have to get off the... There's an incompatibility between human achievement and divine provision. Second, it is not until we get off the fence that we'll ever realize how incompatible they are. Now, what we're doing here on Wednesday night, I don't, I don't know whether some of you have been here and some of you haven't. Let me tell you something. Whether you come on Wednesday night or not, that's all right. 
But we are, I am making a discovery in my Christian life that I should have made a long time ago. And that is this. That the Christian life is lived not on the basis of I need to get up tomorrow and do something for the Lord. It's lived on the basis of trusting God to reveal to me what He's doing. And in the revelation of revealing to me what He's doing, that revelation is an invitation for me to join Him in it. That's simple as that. Now, I don't know how many people I've heard say to me since we've been working through this on Wednesday night that they are seeing some of the most miraculous things happen in their Christian life just on the basis of that. They get up every morning and they say, God, I want you to show me what you're doing today. Just show me what you're doing today. And then they begin to make connection between what they've just prayed and what's happening that day and assume that that's God revealing what He's doing in their life. And that revelation is His invitation to get in on it. And it is not until we get off the fence and say, I'm going to stop this business of trying to please God by my fleshly effort that we discover the difference. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, how relevant it is to our life. And we pray that you'll speak through it now to call our life to you in Jesus' name. There are three invitations tonight. I think there might be somebody here that has never experienced the supernatural birth called a new birth. You may have been a member of a church. You may be active in a church, but you've never been born again. You've never had the Spirit of God give you new life. God is stooping down to you tonight and saying, just take this, take this gift, just believe me, trust me. Surrender your life in trustful surrender to me. And then watch me go to work in you. You may want to come tonight trusting Christ for your salvation. Or you may want to come tonight to surrender your life to Christ more completely, to live by faith and trust, or to join this church as God leads you to do it. And you're seeing Him at work here. And you're, you're, you're witnessing, you're seeing some things that please you about what's happening here. And that revelation is God's invitation for you to come get in on it. You believe that. Not everybody's meant for that to be like that. But maybe you have. Why don't you step out and come tonight while we stand to sing?